0: Well, it's good to be back. Uh, I was away in Germany this last week, and it uh, is very, very good to be back with you all this morning. I bring you greetings from any number of German pastors that I had the privilege of of being with uh, at this pastor's conference. Uh, they wanted me to tell you thank you for letting me be away to minister to them. and so And so I bring you their thanks. I was having a conversation with one of those German pastors, and I, um, they they were asking, you know, I took Christian along with me. uh, And uh, I always try to, when my kids reach a certain age, take them on at least one trip with me, just to expose them to the world, help them see what's going on outside of our own borders. And uh, so I took Christian along with me. He's he's, uh, 13, he's my second son, And they were asking me what his full name was, and I told him, and his middle name, uh, is actually a family name. It's, it's his grandmother's maiden name, Avery. And the pastor that was asking this, who I spent a lot of time with, he was the host, he was kind of shocked, and he said, oh, we would, we could never name our child something like that. I said, why? (laughs) You know, I mean, what's wrong with Avery? And, uh, he said, well, it's, it's a surname. I said, yeah, but you know, Americans do that a lot. You know, we'll often take a a surname, a family name, and use it as a middle name. He said, oh, not in Germany. That's illegal. And I just looked at him and I said, what? He said, no, no, that's illegal. We, We have a list here of approved names, and the it's a big. He said, no, it's a big list, but there is a list, and the government has to approve the name that you give your child. And I just looked at him and I said, Chris, his name also happened to be Christian. I said, Christian, you understand that as an American, what that tells me is you do not live in a free country. I, I, I mean, Americans just, we, we couldn't imagine the government telling us what we could name our child and what we couldn't name our child. It got me thinking about liberty and about freedom I, I think of all people on the planet, Americans particularly value liberty. I mean, our, our nation was born in the fight for it, and I think as a result of that, we we understand that that freedom is is actually quite costly. I mean, right right from the beginning, the Revolutionary War onward, Americans have actually been quite willing to pay for our freedom with, with the lives of our sons and, and our fathers. And for that reason, we hold liberty quite dear. E- even something as trivial as being able to decide for yourself what you're going to name your child. We, we, we know that freedom is important. We know that liberty is important. Uh, precisely because we know that freedom isn't cheap. But there is another impulse in our culture, isn't there? Uh, even as, even as we value freedom, we have a tendency to abuse it. Of course, this is, this is where the conversation about names came up. Uh, be, because the, the government in Germany is very concerned that parents not abuse their freedom to name their children by saddling them with, with a name that no child would ever want to have we do all have a tendency to abuse the freedom that we're given. We've been talking about liberation theology, and of course liberation theology spoke of the need to liberate, to free the poor from the oppression of the rich. It's kind of a noble kind of liberation, a noble freedom. But I think as as we look around our society these days, freedom... Really is the ability to do whatever I want. Liberty in American culture has very much become license, which I heard, heard up front that 's very much what I think liberty has come to mean in american culture uh, and, and, and we can think about it in trivial ways, but we can also think about it in very profound, important ways. You think about some of the biggest discussions that are going on in our culture right now discussions about same-sex marriage, discussions about gun control, discussions about immigration reform. And in one way or another, all of those discussions are about whether there are any legitimate limits to personal freedom. Of course, it's ironic that people that think there should be no limits on sexual freedom do think there should be limits on the ability to own a gun. And those that think that there should be no limits on the ability to own a gun often think there should be limits on sexual freedom. So we don't agree where the limits should come, but, but we do understand there's a big debate going on here. Are there legitimate limits that can be placed on personal freedom? All winter, we've been considering the original liberation theology of the Exodus narrative. And this morning, we come to the climactic moment of liberation, of, of freedom, that the crossing of the Red Sea on dry ground. We're going to think about that liberation this morning, and, and as we do, I want you to consider what it cost for God to set us free, to set us free from our sin. But I also want us to consider what that freedom is for, and what it would look like for us to participate in it. So turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. If you're using a Bible that we provided, that's, that's found on page 106. 106, we're going to consider most of Exodus 13 all the way to Exodus 15, not quite to the end. Uh, we're going to go to uh, chapter 15, verse 21. Now, there is so much in these three chapters that we're not going to be able to cover everything so if you still have a question about something that was going on in these chapters that at, by the end of the sermon that I haven't covered, feel free to come find me at the door and, and, and ask away. I'm happy to talk about stuff that I, I'm not going to talk about in the sermon this morning. But let me, let me just at the outset give you a summary of, of what these three chapters are all about. If I could summarize chapters 13 to 15, it would be simply this. It's a very simple statement. God's people have been redeemed for freedom. God's people have been redeemed for freedom. I want to unpack what that statement means as these three chapters explain it. So first, God's people have been redeemed. Look in chapter 13, verse 1. I'm going to read the first 16 verses. Chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. Then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Abib, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites and Jebusites. The land he swore to your forefathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead. That the law of the Lord is to be on your lips for the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time every year, year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord, the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. "'Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. "'Redeem every firstborn among your sons. "'In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? "'Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. "'When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal.' This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. All right, just to set the scene, uh, as you recall, that the, the Passover has happened. Pharaoh has, has demanded that they get out, and, and Israel is marching out orderly in their divisions And then all of a sudden, chapter 13 opens and we're back into like rules. We're back into ritual and celebration and and, and regulations. And to make it even more confusing, a lot of it we've already heard. A a lot of this, these regulations about not eating any yeast, it's already been covered back in the previous chapter. If you didn't hear the sermon on that, you can go listen to the Easter morning sermon that I preached on that, that Moses has already spent a lot of time covering this ground. And it sounds like he's repeating himself. But there is a point to the repetition. You notice that the chapter begins not about yeast. It begins with this command to consecrate to me every firstborn male. And so you think that's what we're going to talk about, and then all of a sudden, no, we're, we're not going to talk about consecrating the firstborn males. We're we're going to talk about yeast again. We, we we've covered this, and then finally, verse eleven, we come back to what the chapter introduced, consecrating the firstborn male, and 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 what we what we notice is that that actually the The feast of unleavened bread, not eating any yeast, is described in very, very similar terms as the command to consecrate the firstborn male. The the, the language that introduces both is basically the same. The reason for doing both, basically the same. And and now we we begin to get a sense of why is Moses repeating himself? Both the festival of unleavened bread And the consecration of the firstborn male are to be a constant reminder to the people of what God has done. But they're not going to happen quite the same way or quite the same time. The the Passover feast and the larger Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's going to happen the same time every year. It's going to happen on the anniversary of the Passover. But the consecration of the firstborn, well, that's not going to happen at the same time every year. That's going to happen as firstborns are born. Now, amongst animals, that often happens in the spring, roughly the time that Passover happens. But amongst people, well, you know how that works. Firstborns come when firstborns come. And sometimes it's in the spring, but oftentimes it's, you know, in the winter, or in the summer, or in the fall. So this consecration, this act of setting apart the firstborn is going to happen whenever it's needed, Which means that it's possible to then begin to lose sight of why you're doing it. These these rules are put here side by side. They're worded kind of the same. They're tied together because God does not want the people to lose sight of the theological connection, the theological reason for why this consecration is happening. He links them in his word, structuring them the same, both are to be like signs on their hands or on their foreheads. A constant reminder that God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. What God has done, as the text makes very clear, is God has redeemed Israel at the price of blood. God has redeemed Israel at the price of blood. This is why the language of consecration is used to to consecrate something is to set it apart for God to to basically say it doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to God as as Lord of creation. God had made it clear that the firstborn of every living creature was his by right. In in fact, in that sense, the firstborn is really just serving as a a token, almost like a tithe. To make it clear that, you know, it all belongs to God. The firstborn, the secondborn, the thirdborn, the fourthborn. But to remind us that it all belongs to God, God gets the first one. So that first one is consecrated. It is, it is set apart to God. Now, how, how is that done? Well, if, if it's one of the animals that, that they could eat, like a lamb or a goat or, or a calf, you literally gave it back to God. You sacrificed it on the altar. And it was a, a whole burnt offering. It was, it was given back to God completely. This is where biblical religion begins. With this idea that we belong to God. That, that, that everything belongs to God. We're not our own. We, we, we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to him. We, we owe our very existence to him. And, and that fact actually doesn't change whether or not we think he exists. His claim on our life is not contingent on our belief in him. It's simply a fact. He made us. He's the Lord of the universe. And so we belong to him. You know, Egypt belonged to God. Everything in Egypt belonged to God. Now, Egypt did not acknowledge God. But as we saw, that did not stop God from exercising his right as Lord over Egypt to judge Egypt and take the firstborn on that Passover night. I think this is a hard concept for us as modern people to get our our minds around. In the modern world. Almost everything is is elective, right? We 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 choose our government. Our government doesn't have a right over us. No, we choose it. We choose our telephone carriers. No, no telephone carrier out there after Ma Bell was broken up, you know, has the right to claim your telephone service. No, you get to you get to choose. We choose our careers, or at least we think we ought to be able to, and we begin to feel kind of bad about ourselves if we didn't get to choose our career. These days, people are even saying we have the right to choose our gender. I mean, that's how profound our sense of the right to be able to choose for ourselves is. We live in a profoundly elective culture, and that certainly applies to religion. We believe that we should just be able to choose our religion. And in fact, I would be the first to defend religious liberty and yet there's another idea that comes along with that and that is well since i get to choose my religion then religion better leave me alone if i choose to reject it well that's true for religion but, but god isn't religion F- friends the, the the god of the bible is not a religion he's god he's not some some local god he's not a tribal deity he's he's not just like the god of white people or the god of the people that choose him he's god He's God of everyone. He's God of everything. He is the only true God. And whether we acknowledge him or not, our lives belong to him. In fact, our lives are forfeit to him. That's where biblical religion begins. And this is why Israel had to be redeemed. Redeemed. It's just like Egypt, God's people stood under God's judgment. Their, their lives were forfeit to him as much as Egypt's were. If they were to be rescued from the judgment of God, they were going to have to be redeemed. They were, were going to have to be bought back. That's all redemption means. To redeem something is, is to buy it back. And this is what God did. God redeemed Israel himself from the debt that they owed him. And he did it by providing a substitute. We thought about this a couple of weeks ago. That's what the Passover lamb was all about. The lamb died in the place of the firstborn as a substitute. But there's actually more going on there. As scripture talks about it, it's not just that the the lamb, the Passover lamb, was a substitute for the the, uh, Israelite firstborn. It's really what the entire Egyptian nation was about. God declared that Israel was his firstborn son. And then he went on to declare that he would redeem his firstborn son at the price of the firstborn son of Egypt. One son for another, that God's son might live. As the Lord says in Numbers chapter 3, when I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart, I, I consecrated for myself every firstborn in Israel. That's what's going on in in this this rule about consecrating the firstborn. As a a reminder of God's gracious redemption of Israel from Egypt, animals like like donkeys that that couldn't be sacrificed on an altar have to be redeemed. And they're redeemed at the price of a substitute lamb. And even more so, firstborn sons had to be redeemed because they belonged to God. And that raises the obvious question how can the life of a lamb how can even the life of an egyptian firstborn serve as a sufficient payment to redeem the life of god's people and the answer is well they can't they're just a picture this is what the book of hebrews tells us that 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 all that was going on there in the sacrificial system was, was just a picture for us, preparing us for the real redemption, the real payment that God would one day offer because the day would come when God would give not a lamb, not some other nation, but God would give his son, his own son, the life of the son of God for us, that we might be redeemed. That we might be bought back from having to give our our own lives in death and judgment to God. Friends, this is what the cross is about. This is what the rest of Christianity really is, is all about. Christ did not die on the cross because he was a tragic figure. Christ did not die on the cross because he had these grandiose ideas, but they kind of They kind of got away from him and things sort of spun out of control and and the Romans put him up there. No, Christ died on the cross according to plan. Christ died on the cross as a substitute. His blood shed for our redemption. The true son given as a substitute so that all who put their faith in him might be consecrated, might be set apart for God this is what happens when we repent of our sins and, and put our faith in Christ his death now stands for us so that we might be set apart for God not in death but in life now if you're here this morning and, and you're not a believer this is the really the one thing that I want you to consider today uh, the, the, the one thing that I want you to walk away with this morning, the fact that your life is forfeit to God. You will have to give it to him someday. But the good news is Jesus has already given his life for you. If you will put your faith in him, his life on your behalf so that you might have life with God. That, that That's what Christianity is about. Not about rules, not about regulations, but about a relationship made possible by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for you if you will put your faith in him. I, I'd love to talk to you about what this would look like, about what this might mean in your life. I'm going to stand at the door in the back. I would be happy to ignore everybody else and just talk to you after the service about what this would look like. Or, or, or maybe, maybe you just talk with the person that you came with. Or talk with one of the prayer partners that will be down front. Any of us would be glad to talk to you about this. To pray with you about what it would look like to become a son or daughter of God. Now, for those of us that that have already done that, who have already put our faith in Christ, we who are Christians, Christian, you, you have been bought at a price. You have been bought at a price. And that price is the life of the Son of God. Christian, this is how great God's love for you is. God does not have a small love for you. God does not have a grudging love for you. No, he has a great love for you. The love that demonstrates itself through the life of his own son. And yet, if you're anything like me, Christian, I know that, that you are sometimes kind of quick to Take it for granted. Quick, quick to, to forget. To, to begin to live as if my life belongs to me. As if I belong to me. I'm forgetful of this truth. Maybe you're forgetful of this truth. Maybe it's easy to just begin to go through the motions of life. Get busy. Go through the motions of church. And, and, and stop thinking about what it means that we were bought at an incredible price. So so how do we remind ourselves of this? I mean, the Israelites had an annual feast. And every time a firstborn was born, you know, there was a sacrifice that was made. That was constantly reminding them of the great price that had been paid for them. How do we do that? Well, I think the Lord has given us many ways of reminding ourselves of what it means that we were bought at a great price. I mean, to begin with, there's, there's baptism. We celebrated baptism uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. I mean, baptism is, is a reminder for all of us, not just for the person getting baptized, but for everybody sitting out here that, that we have identified with Christ in his death for us as the person goes down into the water. Uh, we've been given the Lord's Supper, something that we celebrate once a month here. Uh, you, you, maybe you wonder why I always try to remember to remind you that we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper or whoever happens to be standing up here. I mean, it's it's always on the first Sunday of the month. It will never, as far as I know, not be on the first Sunday of the month. So why do I bother reminding you? Because it's that important. Because the Lord's Supper is a gift that God's given to us that that we use monthly here to remind us that Christ's blood was shed for me. We, we declare his death until he comes. It's why we make a priority of gathering on Sunday mornings. Why do you come to worship God on Sunday mornings? Why not just stay home and, and uh, do it on your own? Why, why, not, why not just kind of maybe, I don't know, find a sermon on TV? Why, why not just, just pray by yourself, read a scripture passage, we're done. Why do we bother with public worship? Friends, we bother with public worship because this is where we come to remind each other that we were bought at a price. Our our public worship every single Sunday morning is meant to basically rehearse the gospel. I I could keep going. I've got more here, but I'm going to stop. You You get the idea. We need to remind ourselves because we're forgetful. We so easily take for granted the fact that we were bought at a price. We need to remind ourselves so that, as the text says here, the law of the Lord is constantly on our lips. Now, when the scripture talks about the law of the Lord being on our lips, it's not talking about necessarily scripture memory. It's not talking about how we should be quoting, you know, rules and regulations to each other all the time. The, the, The language of the law of the Lord is the language of covenant relationship with God. We remind ourselves that we were bought at a price because we want God's lordship over us to be identity shaping, to be life forming every day, all day, week in and week out throughout the year. God's people have been redeemed. That's the most fundamental aspect of our identity. But second, We have been redeemed for freedom. We've been redeemed for freedom. That's the point of this long section from verse 17 of chapter 13 all the way to the end of the 14th chapter. The point of this whole section is liberation. Chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with them because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite baal Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, So that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Piharoth opposite Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord. The Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into into confusion. He made the wheels of the chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, and a wall of water with a wall of water on their right and on their left, that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. After the climax of the Passover, you would have expected a quick march to Palestine. But there's this surprise twist to the story. It turns out that the route to Palestine, like the route to heaven, is an indirect one. There's so much that has to be learned first. And so God sends them the long way. And God himself leads them in the pillar of cloud and fire. But of course, there's so much going on here in this unexpected route. God, it turns out, isn't finished with Egypt yet either. It's not enough that Israel escapes Egypt. No, God would bring himself glory by utterly defeating Egypt, the the greatest army in the known world at that time, conquering Israel's foe as the divine warrior, single-handedly delivering her forever from Egypt's grasp. Now, the narrative, as I just read it, is full of drama, and it's, it's actually full of quite a bit of humor. First, you see, God lays the trap. He, he wants to deceive Pharaoh into believing that Israel is wandering about, lost and defenseless. And then he ensures that Pharaoh will take the bait. He, he hardens Pharaoh's heart so that all of a sudden, Pharaoh seems to have forgotten everything that had just happened. I mean, you you've got to wonder what is going on in Pharaoh's head. He's just lived through the 10 plagues, and now he thinks, oh, I know. I just didn't use my chariots. If I had only used my chariots, none of this would have happened. I'll use my chariots this time, and, and we'll get the Israelites back. Now, that's, that's the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart, causing him to believe that which is senseless and, and, and foolish given what's happened. So here comes Pharaoh, and all of a sudden, the scene shifts to the Israelite camp. Now, now you know, we've read the story up to this point, and, and if, if you're an Israelite, if, if you were an Israelite, you, you'd think that at this point, okay, you look up, and here comes the Egyptian army, and you think, man, they're just going to cross their arms and kind of laugh and, and say, hey, what what's God going to do now? What, what What's God going to do next? You know, because they saw the ten plagues, too. That's not what they do. They look up, and they're terrified. They cry out in fear. They turn on Moses. They turn on God. What, what, were there no graves in Egypt? I mean, you had to bring us all the way out here? I mean, you wonder where the stereotypical Jewish grandmother jokes come from? Right, right here. Jo- Josh Sofer assured me of this, that, 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 that it goes way back, way back. Were there no graves in Egypt for us? And then the, then the cynicism. It would have been better to remain slaves than to die out here in the desert. It's absolutely incredible. Given what they've just been through, given all that they've seen, they just marched out of Egypt and this is their response. It is absolutely incredible. And oh, oh, so painfully familiar. Because we're just like them, aren't we? I know I am. You know, like the Israelites, we we assume that God must have saved us so that now our life would be really comfortable and we wouldn't have to exercise faith anymore. And then that doesn't happen. And we grow cynical. We become terrified. We begin to rewrite history in, in our own minds, looking back with longing on the good old days of our life. The good old days of slavery. Slavery to sin. We constantly demonstrate how short our memories are, forgetting what God has already done for us. Assuming, maybe, that, oh yeah, I mean, He delivered me once but that's it. Like he's out, you know, his bag of tricks is done and he's not going to do that again. He, he can't deliver me again. Don't we all do this? Aren't we just like these Israelites again and again and again? Friends, we're wrong. Slavery is not better than having to trust God in difficult circumstances. I I understand in in your life, your, your circumstances may have changed and they may have changed for the worse since you started following God. But God has not changed. And so what we are called to do, what these Israelites were not doing, what we are called to do is to live today, even if it's not what we expected. Even if all of a sudden we find ourselves camped with the sea at our back and the Egyptians coming at us. We are called to live today in light of what God has already done. Not in light of what we see. Because the reality is God has not saved us in order to make our lives more comfortable here. God has saved us that we might learn to trust him in an ongoing relationship of trust, and so be for the praise of his glory again and again and again. And, you know, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. I mean, I, I, I look out at this congregation and I see lives of people whose lives have not gone the way you wanted them to go. You know, the script didn't turn out the way you thought it would. It's something that, that Adrian and I have been learning a lot lately. As we've had to come to grips with, with one of our kids, our oldest kid, I've told you about this, who has come down with a, with a, a chronic and, and life-changing disease, You know, it, humanly speaking, it's not curable. And it's going to change his life, and it's already doing that, and it's changing our lives, and it's not the script. It's not the script I would have written. Like you, in, in, in some of your situations, we're, we're having to get used to a new normal. Normal. Because there's not going to be any going back to the old normal. And you know what? I don't like the new normal. And I know that's true for some of you. God God has brought you into a new normal and you you don't like it. And in the midst of that, maybe you're like me, you know, You, you find yourself saying things like, What, were there no were there no graves in Egypt? What God did 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 we really have to move all the way to Portland and then and then you throw us this curveball? Couldn't you have done this earlier, like where where we were settled before our lives had been totally you know overturned by a transcontinental move and before we've been moved away from long-standing friends? I mean, couldn't couldn't you have brought this trial into our life when when the support network was 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 really well established? I mean. Really, God? We ask these questions. And like, like you, you know, your pastor struggles with them. And so I am reminded that the life of faith that, that I've been called to It's exactly the same as the life of faith that I preach to you every week. We have been called to live our lives not in light of our current circumstances. We've been called to live our lives in light of what God has already done. He has nothing left to prove. And we are called to trust him. Moses' response here is incredible. Verses 13 and 14. Let me just summarize it. He says, don't be afraid. God will fight for you. So stop your belly aching. I mean, actually, a more literal translation would be, don't be afraid. God will fight for you. So just shut up. I mean, that's really what he says to them. This, 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 you only, you need only to be still. That's really comforting but it's not actually what the Hebrew says. It's more like, so just be quiet. Because God is going to do this for you. Stop your belly aching. It's a rebuke. And it's meant for people like me. And maybe you. Before we feel too sorry for ourselves, though, in the midst of all of our belly aching, notice how hard it is to be Moses. Moses. There in verses 13 and 14 and and then 15. Having spoken for God to the people, rebuking them. In verse 15, Moses is then spoken to by God for the people. God rebukes Moses. What, What did Moses do? Moses didn't do anything. Right. He's the mediator. But God rebukes him. Tell the people to move on, part the water so they can go through on dry land. Here, friends, is a picture, a beautiful picture of what it means to be the mediator between God and his people. It means being stuck in the middle. It means on the one hand, having to say to the people, do not be afraid, be quiet, trust God, and and then to turn and to receive from God the rebuke that they deserved. And then to be told to turn around and act on their behalf to deliver them. Is this not Christ? Who, who rebukes us in our faithlessness, says, don't be afraid. Who assures us of his faithfulness, his own faithfulness towards us, and who then turns around and receives from God the rebuke that we deserve. And then gives his life and acts for us to deliver us. Moses finds himself here, I think, kind of unwillingly. But Jesus Christ walked into the middle willingly. Does that not warm your heart with love towards your Savior? Who would stand in the middle for you like that? What happens next is the, is the great climax of the narrative. God the warrior fights for his people. Having provided dry ground for Israel... He utterly destroys the Egyptian army in the flood as the waters then return to their rightful place. As you read that section, you should have heard echoes of of Genesis 1 and the division of the waters and the appearing of dry land and the waters going to their rightful place. You should have heard echoes of Genesis 7 and the great flood narrative. They're deliberate. Creation here is being undone and then restored in a flood narrative that perfectly fits the crime of Exodus chapter 1 not a single egyptian survives the waters of this flood but all of israel is saved friends make make no mistake god fights for his people god takes sides and the side that he takes is the side of his people in isaiah chapter 49 The suffering servant is compared to a sharpened sword and a polished arrow in God's hand to deliver God's people. And that is exactly what Jesus was doing on the cross. Yes, he was suffering, but he was suffering very much as the divine warrior. Paul says in Colossians that Jesus on the cross was disarming the enemy and mocking the enemy. And friends, this is what this is what God still does for his people. He still fights for us through the Spirit and and through His Word. Again, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. To this day, Christian, the Lord fights for you. He fights for you. To deliver you when you are helpless to deliver yourself. So go to His Word. Turn to His Spirit. In, in, in the midst of those crises that you face, when, when you can't fight anymore, trust him to fight for you. Here really is another picture of our salvation, not just rescue, not just redemption, but deliverance. Liberation from the hand of our oppressor. Israel was delivered from Egypt. Through Christ, we are delivered from Satan himself. Now, practically, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that Satan's power over us was, was the power to, to condemn us for our sin. But with sin forgiven at the cross, the power of condemnation is gone. Satan is powerless to condemn believers. Satan's power lies in the threat of death for sin. But, but with sin forgiven... The sting of death is removed. Isn't that what Paul says in First Corinthians 15? It is removed. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are no longer under the dominion, the power of sin and Satan. You, you've been set free. You have been liberated from that power to condemn, from that power to destroy. Now, let's be clear. A final liberation still awaits. I mean, the cross, to, to use a World War II image, the cross is D-Day. It's not V-Day right it's it's d day so we so we don't want to think that just because we've become a christian in this life we we've, we've been delivered from temptation as if temptation's not going to happen anymore or to think that we've been delivered from from even the ability to sin as if now that i'm a christian you know i i i won't sin anymore no that that would be to over anticipate the, the final deliverance the final liberation but we don't want to under estimated either we have actually been liberated from our slavery to sin when we were slaves to sin we couldn't say no to sin we, we were not able to not sin but now in christ we have been given through the spirit the power to say no to sin we've been given that power the, the condemnation of satan the threat of death is gone and in the Spirit, we can say no to sin. Now, we 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 will still fail. We we will still fall into sin. But but friends, we will not finally fall if we are in Christ. In in, in World War II, of course, D Day was really looking back on it. The guarantee that V Day was coming. Well, so it is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee. That V day is coming. The guarantee that our resurrection is coming. The guarantee that the final liberation will happen. Freed not just from the power of sin. Not just the condemnation sin. But, but freed from these bodies of death. Freed from the reality of sin forever. No longer able to sin. No longer able to be tempted. Because finally and fully free. That day can't come soon enough, as far as I'm concerned. It cannot come soon enough. If you're not a Christian, I I would just invite you to to try to imagine what would it mean for you to know this kind of freedom, to be set free from all those things inside of you that seem to control you. There's things that you don't like. There's things that you're ashamed of, and yet you cannot escape. What would it be like to be set free from that? Friend, that's what Christ holds out for you in the gospel. And of course, Christian, now that we have been freed from sin's condemnation, now that we are no longer afraid of death, we have a responsibility to to use our freedom, not, not for sin, but for God. That really leads to the final thing that I want to talk about just briefly. What we are freed for. We have been redeemed for freedom, but, but, but what what have we been freed to? What, what are we freed for? Friends, we have been freed in order to come home. That's what chapter 15 is all about. Let me read it. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider, he's hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation he is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he's hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the, in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I'll divide the spoils. I'll gorge myself on them. I'll draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you, O Lord, blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through that the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider, he is hurled into the sea. In this chapter, Moses really retells the story of the crossing of the Red Sea all over again, but this time in poetic form. We we learn a few new details, but that's really not the point. The point of the poem is that God did not give them freedom to then just go on and live however they wanted, to just go on their merry way and do as they pleased. The point is he gave them freedom so that they could come home. So that they could come home. You, you, you notice the, the, the change, change in tense there in verse 13. The, the whole song has been in the past tense, declaring who God is because of what he has done, past tense. But then in verse 13, it's all looking forward. It's all future tense, looking forward to what God will do. And what Moses describes there in verses 13 and following is, is the conquest of Canaan. but But it's not a battle. It's a parade. It's a it's a triumphant procession. It's a homecoming. As the people who left 400 years ago finally get to come back in triumph and in joy. And then as you look at the details what they're returning to isn't just Palestinian real estate. No, the, the home that they return to is the sanctuary of God. Look there in, in verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. That, that, that mountain sanctuary is Mount Zion. The, the place where the temple would one day be built. The place where God would dwell, where he would place his name. And the people, the text tells us, are going to be planted there. A fruitful vine in the garden of God once again, we have echoes of Genesis chapter two, the people of God in the garden of God, the imagery couldn't be more clear. It's not that, that all of Israel is going to live in Jerusalem. It's that God's people are returning to God's place under God's rule. The promises to Abraham are being fulfilled, but it's not just the promises to Abraham. It's the promise to Adam. This is the point of bringing Joseph's bones with them. The serpent king has finally been crushed. And the people are going home to God. Do you notice how relentlessly God-centered this song is? There's really very little about how Israel feels. Rather, but, it, but it's, a, it's a song of great feeling. But, but all those feelings are flowing from the objective truth of who God is. What God has done. What God will do. How he's been their savior, their deliverer, how, how he's their redeemer and their, their warrior. That the song is all about God, his, his power, his, his majesty, his wrath, but most of all, his love. And in the end, the song resolves into that beautiful, glorious truth of God as king. Israel delivered from their slavery and now come home to him to worship and serve him as their rightful Lord and King. Friends, this is what our freedom is for. This is why we've been set free. Jesus Christ sets us free to be with God. This is what we were made for, for, for worship. True freedom is not about license. True freedom is not about just being able to do whatever you want. That, that's the lie of Satan in the garden. That's what God has kicked out of the garden in the first place true freedom is to once again be in god's presence unafraid god's people in god's place under god's rule receiving god's blessing it's an incredible picture that moses lays out for them of course we know how the story goes moses didn't accomplish this nor did joshua nor did david yes they came into the land yes the temple was built but they had to leave again. But this wasn't finally accomplished by those men. It was accomplished by Jesus. Pharaoh and every other God alternative has always wanted a nation of slaves. A, a people that would work for them. But here we see God desiring a nation of priests. A people who are qualified to stand in his presence unafraid. Moses' song begins with God coming to us. God coming to us to overthrow our enemies, to set us free from the house of bondage. And friends, this is exactly what Christ has done. He has come to us as our warrior king on the cross, delivering us from the house of bondage. But it's not where the song ends. The song does not end with warfare. The song ends with worship. It ends with the God who came to us, bringing us to him, planting us in his garden to be with him forever. Friends, this is what Jesus promises to do. To bring us to himself. To be with him forever. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free so that we might come home to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we take these great truths for granted. We we skim over them quickly. And yet, they're the greatest truths that we can know, that through Christ you have redeemed and set us free in order to bring us to yourself. Lord, we pray that we would know that freedom. We pray that it would warm our hearts. We pray that it would set loose our tongues. We pray that it would shape our lives we might live in light of what you have done and what you will do. So that in the midst of this wilderness wandering, in the midst of the trials that we face, we do indeed want to sing songs of praise. For we know the truth about you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.